We are back into Genesis this morning, uh, even as we were uh, spending some time praying this morning for this service. Um, just a good reminder, I don't know if you knew, uh, he's still risen, <laughs> all right? Um, Easter's over, <laughs> Christ is still risen, he's still building his church, he's still doing his good work, and uh, excited to get back into uh, the book of Genesis, and uh, so I just encourage you to take out your Bible, um, and we want you to have God's Word open in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, or if you, like me, forgot yours, um, I just forgot mine on the front pew, um, yeah, just go ahead and raise your hand, and uh, one of our ushers will get you uh, a copy of Scripture. And if you don't have a copy at home, uh, or if you have a copy but it looks like it was maybe written in the 1500s, uh, it probably was. Um, and so we'd encourage you if, you, if you need one that's easier English, grab one of these. We'd love you to have that. And uh, Genesis chapter 9 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Um, and uh, if you've been reading ahead... Or maybe you're just now scanning the second half of Genesis chapter 9. You're right. This is not one of the passages that I would have like cherry-picked. Uh, let's preach a sermon on Genesis 9, 18 to 29. Um, this isn't one of those verses. This is one of those verses that you come to when you're working verse by verse through Scripture. And you're like, what is here, Lord? What do we do with this? Uh, I wouldn't have chosen this. Uh, but God is good, and his word is good, and all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, training, correcting, uh, or correcting training in righteousness. And so we, uh, we want to continue to work through God's word, and I believe there is good for us here, even in these odd passages. Now, along with that, um, we love our happy endings, don't we? Um, my wife won't even watch a movie with me if she somehow found out that it doesn't have some magical happy wrap-up at the end. Um, we like things to, uh, to tie up nicely. We like, like, like the, the neat resolution and, uh, and a story that leaves us feeling all warm and fuzzy inside at the end. And, and the Bible as a whole, actually, we could say is the, the ultimate, the, the happiest of all happy endings. Um, but the story of Noah on its own um, leaves a lot to be desired in that department. The story of Noah itself ends with this kind of big, fat, unhappily ever after. We've seen hints of it already as soon as Noah gets off the boat. Uh, the Lord confirms again that even, even after the judgment of the flood, the human heart has not changed. Human nature remains unchanged. So Genesis 8, 21, the Lord says, uh, the intentions of his heart are evil from his youth. Um, the flood didn't do it. It wasn't, it wasn't the magic ticket. It didn't solve all of the problems of humanity. But it's not until we get to our passage here this morning that we begin to see the actual effects of that sin working themselves out in this post-flood world. So let's read this text together, and then we'll uh, work our way through it. Genesis chapter 9, starting at verse 18. The sons of Noah, who went forth from the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of, all, of the whole world were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. 
Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Odd passage of Scripture, and yet so much, so much here. Um, Verses 18 and 19 um, are are kind of a short introduction, I think, to this section. Um, Chapter 8 and the first half of of chapter 9 told of of Noah coming off of the ark and and the the Noahic covenant as we know it and God's promise, the, the rainbow and all of that. But here the story picks up with Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And there are a couple of points of interest in this introduction that I just don't want to leave behind as we work through. Firstly, notice verse 19 tells us that from these three sons, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. In spite of the small number of people that came off of the ark, the entire population of the world came through these three men, three sons of Noah. Um, I hope this doesn't need to be said, and yet I'm going to say it anyway. This is one of the clearest places in Scripture we see just the the unity of mankind. All of the races, all of the ethnicities, all of the, the people of the different countries of the earth, they grew out of these three sons, the descendants uh, not only of Adam, but of Noah. And uh, more importantly, because of that, we are all equally created in the image of God. Our culture is so obsessed with racism. It seems you can't watch uh, a, a minute of, of the news today without seeing it um, one way or another. This is the biblical answer. This is the biblical worldview that we would stand on, uh, and, and it just ends it right there, plain and simple. We, we can talk about the, the strengths and weaknesses of different cultures. We can talk about the uniqueness of, of different races. We can, we can celebrate the diversity of humanity, and we should. But in the end, every person from every race is part of this singular human family. Each person has this immeasurable value, having been created in the image of God. So there's zero room for racism in, in a biblical worldview period. Second interesting tidbit, um, more to the point of this passage, uh, is this strange little line in, in verse 18. Um, he says that, that Ham and Japheth, the, the sons of Noah, and then he adds this little parenthesis, Ham is the father of Canaan. And it begs the question, who cares? <laughs> Why are you telling us this? Well, why is that relevant? What does that mean? Um, Ham has other sons. Japheth and Shem have sons. Why is it important that we know that Ham is the father uh, of Canaan? There's two reasons for this. Firstly, um, it's tipping us off. This story uh, is actually about Ham's son, Canaan. 
the, the implications, the application of the story lands there. Um, he's not a major character in the story itself, but this little comment is helping to, to orient us, tips us off at the beginning, that that's where this is driving to. Secondly, and, and correlated to that, um, we have to remember when the book of Genesis is being written. Right? This is written by Moses for the people of Israel as they are wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, also known as the land of Canaan. Right? So God is giving them pertinent information for where they are in their nation's history. The story of, is giving Israel this kind of background. The people of Canaan, the people that you're dealing with, the people that you're about to, to go into and destroy and displace, this is where they started. This is where they came from. And so um, log that away. That gives us some context as to where we're going. Um, then let's move into the story itself. Um, the scene opens with the sin of Noah. Look at verses 20 and 21. Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. Noah, like Adam, was a man of the soil. He's a, he's a gardener. And, and so Noah um, is providing for his family. He's growing presumably all kinds of things, and one of the things he sets out to grow is a vineyard. Now, now this would not have been a small task. Um, growing a vineyard takes time and cultivating and training uh, the, the, the bushes and the vines as they grow. So this was probably a three to four year process at minimum as he's cultivating this vineyard, uh, which means this event here was, was probably um, a moment of celebration. Noah is finally reaping the rewards from years of hard work, and, and, and it's a celebration. Now, the Bible doesn't condemn alcohol. It does condemn drunkenness. And, and this is the first time that alcohol is mentioned in the Bible. This ought to be a warning to us. We should take note um, that this is the story uh, in Scripture in which God decides to introduce the theme of alcohol. So again, let's just walk through that a little bit, try to get a, a biblical perspective in a broader sense. Alcohol is not a sin. Psalm 105.15 even says that God gives wine as a gift to gladden the hearts of men. Same as oil for the face, or the beard, um, and, uh, and, and bread for, the, for strength. Ecclesiastes 9.7 says, Eat your bread and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Alcohol is given as a gift, a gift to be enjoyed. It is meant to, to make merry with. It's not evil in itself. It's a, it's a good gift from God. However, the Bible strongly warns against drunkenness. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. It's not wise. It makes a mess. It's a, a mocker and a brawler. Ephesians 5, 18 says, do not be drunk with wine. That is debauchery. That's exactly what we see. I, I don't know if Paul is thinking specifically of Noah, but he's drunk with wine, and, it, and it's debauchery but be filled with the Holy Spirit, be controlled by the Holy Spirit instead. 
So it's coming out of that, the the book of Leviticus warns the priests they were not to drink alcohol before they went into the temple or the tabernacle, lest they do something foolish and die because of it. Um, Proverbs warns that kings should not drink strong drink because the consequences are high. Their decisions matter. They need to have their, their wits about them. 1 Timothy 3 says an elder in the church must not be given to drunkenness. So alcohol is not forbidden. It's a gift from God. Drunkenness is a a sin, and and alcohol can be dangerous. Now, Noah here is enjoying the fruit of his vineyard. It's not a bad thing to do. He's just having this celebration, um, but he's careless, and his carelessness turns into drunkenness, and his drunkenness turns into shame. All of a sudden, he's not only drunk, but he's passed out naked in his tent. As we so often do, I think as we look at the stories or recognize, um, the the church tends to pendulum swing back and forth, don't we? Um, Fifty years ago, we were extremely cautious about alcohol, erring, I think, even into an unhealthy legalism um, and anti-alcohol. I think for me growing up, I mean, if you said the word beer, you probably already sinned in your heart. And, and so it was just like a no-go, absolutely not. No one who loves Jesus could possibly touch that. It's probably a little far in one direction. Now I think we, we're in danger of swinging the other way. There are those who are, are so proud of our, our freedom. Look, what we, we're so much better than the people before us because we can enjoy this. And if you can't enjoy this, something must be, must be wrong with you. Come on, get in on this. There's a carelessness there that is, that is dangerous. Um, the story of Noah ought to be a warning to us. After all, this is Noah. Right? We, ought to, we have to look up to Noah. Noah is a a very godly grandfather that we all have. He was not weak and careless by nature. He's called a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, but Noah let his guard down. So easy, right? It's a special occasion. Everyone's having a couple. It's just a a little bit more. and, And all of a sudden, he finds himself sliding down the slippery slope, even actually flat on his back at the bottom of the slippery slope. Um, Don't think that we're not in danger here. Um, We need to be cautious. Don't think you're on solid ground where Noah fell. And and let's be understanding about that. There are probably some among us, or probably many among us, who would be wise to say, I'm not going to touch it. I don't want to start down that slippery slope. I will have none. And we ought to say, praise the Lord, brother. Let me help you and strengthen you in that. Maybe there are others who say, I'm going to enjoy it in careful moderation. And we should hold each other accountable to that. And we should be cautious here. Um, Do not be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we ought to be on guard as we look at this story of, of Noah's sin and where that led. Noah fell into sin and shame. Um, but that really is just the, the beginning of the story. This is still kind of the setup. As I said, we're, we're going somewhere with this. The, the sin of Noah is just the beginning. The focus then uh, is on the sons of Noah. Look at the contrast between uh, these two other sons. Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. 
Verse 22 then says, And Ham, again, the father of Cain, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So first we have Ham. And again, we're told that he's the the father of Cain, in case you forgot. And he came into the tent uh, of his father, and there he sees his father's nakedness. He sees Noah laying out in his drunken stupor. Um, Now this phrase right here is a source of a lot of discussion. Pages and pages and pages and pages. Believe me, I read them. Um, What does this mean? What exactly did Ham do? All kinds of things have been suggested. Some are ludicrous and not worth mentioning. Some are uh, a little more um, logical, um, noteworthy. I think it's very noteworthy. If you read through Leviticus 18, of course, remember, Moses wrote both of those books. Um, The phrase, uncovered the nakedness, comes up again and again and again and again through Leviticus 18. Uh, And it's used as a, a euphemism. It's a polite way um, that, that Moses uses to speak of all kinds of sexual sin, including incest and, and bestiality and homosexuality. Um, it's not a fun passage. Uh, verses 6 and 7, though, I think are particularly poignant. Listen to this. Um, Leviticus eighteen six and 7. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. And so it's easy to see um, there's a lot of room for speculation. What exactly happened here? Possibly Ham's sin was something very perverse, maybe involving his mother, maybe involving Noah. Um, It's Maybe very unclear. There's good reason in the text to, to go that way. Um, personally, I'm, I'm hesitant to do so. I, I wouldn't argue with you. If you landed there, I'd say I can see why. Um, I'm leaning more toward um, taking this more at face value. And, and I'll tell you why. Firstly, the euphemism from Leviticus to uncover the nakedness is not actually used in Genesis, if you look careful. I think there's a connection between the two, and we'll come to that later. Um, but Leviticus says, uncover the nakedness over and over again. That's the euphemism. Verse 21 in, in Genesis 9, uh, it's Noah who uncovers his nakedness, or he lies uncovered in his tent. Um, it's Noah who did it. And then when it comes to Ham, we see that he saw his father's nakedness. He's, he's a step removed. Um, he's outside, not uncovering his father's nakedness, but seeing that his father is uncovered. Uh, the other thing is, as Shem and Japheth come in, um, they do the opposite of Ham. They undo whatever it was that Ham did, and, and, and quite literally, they cover their father. 
They lay a garment on him. Actually, the, the grammar there is very specific. It's not a garment, it's the garment. So some suggest maybe Ham brought the garment out and Japheth and Shem take it back in, um, the garment. Um, and, and very literally, and they turn their faces away. They're, they're walking backwards so as not to see their father's nakedness. And so I think the contrast between those two, in my mind, um, says that, that it's just face value. Ham saw his father's nakedness. Um, the question maybe then that lingers, and this is what people wrestle with, why is it such a big deal? Why does it, just, why does it matter if that's all that happened? Um, and I think the answer is that it's, it's hard for us, maybe in our modern context, to appreciate two things from their context. First, the idea of honoring one's father in their ancient context. That was a big, big deal. They live in a shame-honor culture. This is your father. Um, To shame your father was huge. Actually, if you go through into Deuteronomy, um, to to disobey your father was worthy of stoning. Kids. Um, Sorry, we'll move on. Shame on the father was a big deal. Secondly, the, the shame of nakedness was a big deal. We're pretty comfortable in our day with immodesty. Um, We walk through the shopping mall, enough said. To our own shame, we we see a a lot more immodesty around us. We're much more comfortable with with it. They weren't. That was a big deal. To be uncovered, to be naked was incredibly shameful. To have your nakedness seen. Um, Jesus was stripped naked, hung on the cross. That was significant shame. So this is a very big deal. Ham walked in on his father. He saw his father's nakedness. And and then look how he responds. Rather than turning away, he looks. To some degree, he, he revels in the lewdness of it. And rather than respecting his father, covering his nakedness, being discreet about it, uh, it says he went and told his brothers. Some again have read into that a little bit more. Maybe that includes some mocking and and jesting. Um, I think there's a good word in here about how we should deal with the sins of others. Are we we quick to to cover? Not not cover up for, but to, to minimize the exposure. Appropriate discretion. Proverbs 17, 9 says, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter uh, separates close friends. Um, we ought to be discreet. We ought to be um, striving toward holiness together. And, and, and Matthew 18, right? If someone sins against you, go to, you just between the two of you. Go to your brother. Solve it there. Maybe, maybe that sin doesn't need to be any broader than that. But Ham goes and tells his brothers. His brothers then respond appropriately, again, walking backwards, not looking, guarding the dignity of their father. They lay this garment over him. Um, But what is made clear in this passage is, is even after the flood, the judgment of the wicked uh, sorry, after the judgment of the wicked, even after God's renewal of the earth, the problem of sin continues. Sin persists. We need more than just cultural cleansing. We need more than uh, just some social reform. We need more than than good government and good examples. That's not going to fix it. The problem of our sin is not outside of us. It's inside of us. 
And so the solution for our sin cannot come from inside of us. It has to come from outside of us. Do you see that? Let me, let me say that again. Think about this. The problem of our sin is not outside of us, but inside of us. And so the solution for our sin can't be from inside of us. It has to be from outside. Sin continues after the flood. We need a rescue. We need a rescue from this broken world. We need a rescue from our own broken, sinful selves. The next section of the text then um, begins an interesting shift in in the direction of of the entire book of Genesis. Um, Look with me, verses 24 to 29. And here we see Noah's response. Noah's response. More significantly, uh, as part of Noah's response, we see as we kind of read into what's said here, God's plan. So um, Genesis 9, starting in verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew his youngest son, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Cain. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. I want to start by, oh, I, sorry, I hit the end of the page, verse 29, which is where I want to start. Um, this last uh, 28 and 29, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So I want to just skip over to that um, kind of closing tidbit, the conclusion there. Um, I don't know if you caught it, but that verse has a familiar ring to it. That sounds like something we've read before. Um, we first read the name Noah back in Genesis chapter 5. Chapter 5 is a, a genealogy. It's a list of descendants, um, the, the, the family line of Seth, the, the godly son of Adam. Seth was um, the one of whom it was said, in this time people began to call on the name of the Lord. And yet, as we see the descendants of Seth, through chapter 5, is, is punctuated with this constant refrain over and over again. Uh, the same kind of formula, the same structure as we see here. Thus, all the days of so-and-so were X number of years, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Eight times over 31 verses we see um, they died. This is the reign of death from sin, even in the godly line of Seth. The last person to be born in that genealogy was Noah. Noah is born at the end of chapter 5, the son of Lamech, and, and it's not until right here that we read of Noah's death using this exact same formula. And so the whole story of Noah and the flood is like a big parenthesis in the middle of a genealogy. In, in, in the middle of chapter 5, he breaks off, and now he's concluding. What that shows us is that Even after the flood, even in the life of Noah himself, sin and death still reign. Even after the flood, this is still the age of death. This is still the fallout from sin and the curse. That's the unhappily ever after part. God judges. He brings about the flood. It's the new earth, and yet it remains in the same state. Humanity is still sinful. And yet, knowing the end of the story, um, we're going to press past Noah's unhappily ever after uh, and and see um, a little more of what the Lord has in store here. 
these middle verses. Noah awoke from his drunkenness. Somehow he's made aware of what his youngest son had done. Uh, and specifically, um, or what his, all of his sons had done, specifically his youngest son. And his response is to give out these curses and blessings on his children. This, this will become a, a standard, regular format in the book of Genesis. The father um, dealing out blessings mostly, some curses on their sons before they die. There's nothing magical about it. It's not like Noah's words have some kind of mystical power that changes the course of his children's lives. Um, a blessing, a curse, it has no more power than the person making it. And yet God is obviously at work here. So these words are maybe something of a hybrid between like a prayer and a prophecy. God is inspiring these words. And so his prayer is, is also pointing forward to God's plan and where God is going. And, and it begins with the curse on Cain. And with that, we have this often, or this curse on Canaan, sorry, um, which then again begs the question, why? Why Canaan? What is going on here? It was Ham who sinned. Why not curse Ham? And again, Ham had other sons as well. Why is it, why is it Canaan who's cursed and not the other sons? Um, and, and significantly problematic is the fact that, that Cain seems to be punished, Canaan, um, for the sins of Ham. Ezekiel 18.20, the Lord says this, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father for the iniquity of the sons. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And yet Canaan appears to be judged for the sin of his father. There's another passage that I think plays in significantly as we're trying to understand what's going on here. And, and I think this one helps give us an answer or move us toward an answer. Exodus verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 5 says, You shall not bow down to them, these false gods, or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Um, correlation here, he says that, that he will visit the iniquity, so he will, he will judge the sin uh, of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. The sin of the fathers absolutely affects the children. But in what way? How is this not completely contradictory to Ezekiel? God says, I will not judge the children for the sins of their fathers. And God says, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers onto the children. Well, I think if we look a little more closely, the key is right here in the text. He says, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Of those who hate me. He's, he's saying... The children of those who hate God are judged for the sins of their fathers as they also hate God. They are judged for the sins of their fathers as they walk in the sins of their fathers. They live out, they commit the same sins that they learn from their fathers. Question for the fathers this morning. Out of curiosity... How many of you, either growing up or probably newly married, uh, we, we have a couple who are uh, awaiting the arrival of their first 
kid. How many of you have, have thought in your mind or said out loud, I will never do this or that that my father did? Come on, where are you? How many of you said it? I would never do. My dad did this. I will never do that. Those of you who have a little more experience as fathers, um, how many of you then have had that kind of almost out-of-body experience where you're looking down at yourself saying or doing exactly what your father did? Um, yeah, we totally do it. We totally walk out the things that we have learned and seen in our dads. Fathers, yes, absolutely. Mothers as well, but primarily fathers. Um, your sin is not private. It's not just between you and the Lord. Your children, partly because of the, the traits and the temperament that they're going to inherit from you, and partly because of what they see and hear in you, what they learn from you, they're going to be bent towards. They will be weak toward and predisposed toward the same sins that live in you. That's terrifying. That's humbling. You better believe they see and know a heck of a lot more than you think they see and know. Certain circles of Christianity, there's a lot of talk about generational curses. Um, as far as I know, this is the only passage that you would go to to, to talk about that. Um, and this passage is clear. Each individual is judged on the base of their own sin. Um, but we absolutely inherit um, not, not some spiritual bondage, but, but the weaknesses and the dispositions and the attitudes of our fathers. We learn things. Um, we, we inherit things. And from generations to generation, these things are passed down. What are you passing down to your children? What are the sins that you're tolerating in your own life that they will have to deal with in theirs? What are the sinful habits, the tendencies, the attitudes um, that you are failing to put to death in your own life that will then be renewed with vigor and strength in the lives of your children? What are the things that you can say, you know what, this sin that I happen to know has gone on before me, it ends here. I think that's what's going on with the relationship between Ham and Canaan. Um, either the Lord is prophetically speaking through Noah, or Noah is looking at Canaan and saying, um, that, that phrase, Ham was the father of Canaan, maybe that's Noah saying, yeah, Canaan's his daddy's son, right? He's his father's son. He's, they're cut from the same cloth. Either way, as the story of Scripture plays out, we eventually see the Israelites, the descendants of Shem, poised to enter the land of the Canaanites. And here's where Leviticus 18 comes back again. Constantly use the phrase, uncover the nakedness, describe all manner of, of sexual sin and perversion. Verse 2 and 3 of Leviticus 18, um, the chapter begins this way. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. This description of all of the sexual sin and the deviation throughout Leviticus 18, it was a description of the people of Canaan. The descendants of Canaan, the, the Canaanite nation would be cursed as they absolutely followed in and built on and increased in the sin of their father. God would judge them. 
And so he would be humbled. He would be shamed. He would be the servant of servants for his brothers, lowly trampled on. On the other hand, Noah went on to say, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. The focus is still uh, the curse on Canaan. His name comes up in every line. Um, and yet, these two brothers, there's, there's blessing. Uh, once again, there's, there's, there's an interesting way that it's phrased here. Noah doesn't say, blessed be Shem. Uh, he says, blessed be the, the Lord, Yahweh who is the God of Shem. The blessing on Shem is, is there. It is a blessing to him, um, but Yahweh is the focus. Shem is blessed because Yahweh is his God. And then to Japheth. First, that Japheth would be enlarged, and there's a play on words there. The name of Japheth means enlarged, and so um, he's, he's giving that blessing to him, would increase, would multiply greatly. But secondly, that Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem. So follow the the logic here. The focus is on the the goodness, the blessedness of Yahweh. The blessing to Shem then is that Yahweh would be his God, and the blessing to Japheth is that he would dwell in the tents of Shem, where Yahweh is. All the while, wicked Canaan is excluded. Those who walk in sin and perversion are, are trampled. And this is God kind of shifting the focus um, somewhere between our passage this morning and the beginning of chapter 12. Um, there's a, a, a massive change, a seismic shift in the book of Genesis from the, the broader work uh, of God in the world through, through creation and the flood and Noah um, to this much more focused, pointed work as God brings about his Redeemer through the, the family line of Shem. This right here um, is the next subtle step in the fulfillment of the promise that God made uh, in Genesis 3.15. This is the faithfulness of God coming into play once again. When Adam first sinned, eating the fruit of the tree that caused him to recognize that he was naked and to feel shame brought about the curse of sin. And God promised he would send a redeemer, a rescuer, a son born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would destroy the work of the devil. Now in the new world after the flood, Noah, the new Adam, sins in eating the fruit of the vine, which leads to his nakedness and his shame, and it brings about curse on Canaan. But God's reaffirming his promise. The blessing is still going to come. The, the rescuer is still on the way. And, and this is how I'm going to do it. He's going to come through the line of Shem. And he will come to rescue all people as Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. Nine generations after Shem would come Abraham. We'll get there in a, in a couple of weeks. I don't want to spoil that sermon, but we, we have to look at, at what the Lord says to Abraham. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. He says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
The Lord would dwell with Abraham. He would bless Abraham. He would be Abraham's God. Through Abraham and his descendants, God would then bless all the families of the earth. This is the blessing. It wasn't wasn't new with Abraham. Abraham, God was affirming the promises that he made through Noah here. Blessing Shem. Yahweh would be their God. And that in blessing uh, Japheth, that they would dwell in the tents of Shem. That they would be blessed through the blessing that God gave to Shem. Now sadly, even Abraham was not the end of human sinfulness. It would continue on. Even the descendants of Shem and the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, um, would then walk in the way of Cain, eventually of Canaan. 2 Kings 17, 7 to 15. Listen to what the Lord says about his people. This is 700 years later, and he sends them out of the land of Canaan. He sends them out into exile. Why? Uh, It's too long to put on the screen, but just listen as I read. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. That's Canaan. They did exactly what God told them not to do. And in the customs of the kings of Israel uh, had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God the things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city, and they set up for themselves pillars and asherim. And on every high hill and under every green tree, and they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I have commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. But they were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he had given them. They went after false idols and they became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them they shall not do like them. They did exactly uh, what the nations before them had did. Exactly what Canaan was being cursed and punished and cast out of the land for, they began to walk in that same way and they themselves were exiled from the land. Under the surface, this language of the the pillars and the ashram and the high places, um, the assumption under that is the incredibly deviant sexual worship practices of the Canaanites. It's all there. Once again, humanity would be unfaithful, but God would continue in his faithfulness. That's the story of sin. That's where this ends. When it's up to us, uh, it's always unhappily ever after. When it's on us to try to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, just as it was with Adam, just as it was with Noah, we, we will fail. And yet God continues to be faithful. 
Listen to the words of Isaiah. Spoken uh, at the time of Israel going into exile. In the middle of of the the Israelites' sin. Listen to what, what the Lord says about his coming Messiah. Isaiah 49, 5 and 6. Listen for, for God's blessing on Israel, the descendants of Shem, and listen also for, for God's blessing to the rest of the world. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. And he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations. My salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Even though Israel was defiant and sinful, God would be faithful. Messiah would still come and he would gather his own. He would bring them back. He would bring them to repentance, but more than that, he would be a light to the Gentiles. Yahweh would be Shem's God, and Jephthah would come and dwell in the tents of Shem. 600 years later, Jesus is firstborn and brought into the temple and is greeted there by faithful Simeon. And Luke 2 30 to 32, listen to Simeon's rejoicing. My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus was the the glory of Israel as he was the, the blessing to Shem. He was exactly what God had promised and he was a light to the Gentiles. John 12, 32, Jesus prophesied about his near coming death he said and I when I am lifted up from the earth I will draw all men to myself all people to myself we all come Jews Gentiles alike as those from the line of Canaan we are fallen we are sinful we have turned away everyone to his own way but in Jesus there's a rescue there's grace God continues in his faithfulness Those who rebel, those who walk in sin as Canaan did, throwing off the shackles of God, saying, no, we will go our own way. They will be trampled. They will be judged. But Jesus came to gather sinful rebels. Rebels from the people of Israel and the line of Shem. Rebels from the line of Japheth. Even rebels from the line of Ham and Canaan. Ephesians 2, 17 says this of Jesus, He came and preached peace to you who are far off. It's the Gentiles, the nations. And peace to those who were near. For through Him, through Jesus, we both Jews, Gentiles alike, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We're brought in. We're welcomed into the blessing of God. In Jesus, the the glory of Israel, salvation comes uh, for all who will trust in him.